John 1, 14 through 18 is the last paragraph in this introduction John gives to his gospel. In these 18 verses, John lays out many of the themes he's going to return to time and time again. So he's really whetting our appetites. He's giving us just a taste of what is to come. He's tuning our minds so that when we hear these things come up again in the life of Jesus, we'll go back and say, okay, I was looking for that. I knew that would occur. And these verses serve as the culmination of this prologue, this introduction. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we would ask this morning that You would give us eyes to see Jesus. Grant us, Father, to see with the eyes of faith and to behold His glory. Father, we confess that we are easily distracted. We fix our eyes upon things that are not eternal, things that will not satisfy. So please, Lord, allow us not just to glimpse the glory of Jesus, but to behold it, to gaze upon it, to savor it, to linger upon it. We are dependent upon your spirit, Father. For we can't make this happen. So hear the cries of your children. Asking us to experience the glory of your son. For it is in his name that we pray. And the church said, Amen. Oxford University is one of the oldest universities in the world. Dating back into the 1500s, it has well established itself as one of the leading intellectual centers, not just of England, but of the world. Now, Oxford University is not just one school. It's actually a series of colleges that are located in the town of Oxford. The newest of which was founded in 1962, Lineacre College. Linacre College, now I'm going somewhere with this, so bear with me. Linacre College is named after a man by the name of Thomas Linacre. Linacre was a physician. In fact, he was the personal physician of Henry VII and Henry VIII. And he was well known because under his leadership, the Royal College of Physicians was founded to train future doctors. Linacre was also a believer. But here's the unique thing about that time. There weren't many Bibles around. To have a copy of the Scripture was something that was deemed very precious. So Lineker did not have his own copy of the Scripture. One day a friend of his, a priest, 
came to him with a copy of the four Gospels in Greek and Latin, which was fine because Lineker was fluent in Greek and Latin. And he said, here are the four Gospels. You can borrow my copy so you can read them for yourself. Lineker was thrilled. He took the Gospels home and for several months poured over them, studied them. And when the day came that he presented the copies back to his friend, with the utmost seriousness, he looked at him and he said, either those are not the Gospels or we are not Christians. I want you to think about that statement. This was a man that knew religion. But in encountering Jesus of the Gospels firsthand, he recognized there was a vast difference between what he had learned and how he was living and who Jesus is. It's those moments where he recognized, are we simply following and worshiping the Jesus of our tradition? Are we claiming allegiance to the Jesus whom we have created in our mind that fits our needs? You see, the real Jesus will not be silenced. And when we encounter him through the Gospels, we will come to a point, just like Thomas Linacre, where we must adjust or continue on in our folly. Now our enemy wants to do everything he can to keep you and to keep me from beholding the glory of Jesus. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that he argues and fights against every stronghold that is built up against the knowledge of God. Our enemy's target is to keep you from beholding the glory of Jesus. And his weapons are many. When he engages in the fight for your thinking to keep you from beholding Jesus, he will engage in the fancy footwork of busyness. He'll keep your feet moving and your mind occupied so you're thinking, I'm just so busy, I don't have time to stop and to think about who Jesus is. And if that's not enough, Satan comes at us then with the jabs of cluttering cluttering our minds and he hits us time and time again to keep our minds distracted to keep us filled with tidbits of trivia and knowledge that rob us from the ability to focus simply upon Jesus and then after the footwork of busyness the jabs of clutterness clutter he comes at us with the haymaker of sin if he can get us so consumed and comfortable in our sin He'll knock us out and we'll stay on the mat and say, that's it, I give up. Well, I want you to know that we can be victorious in that battle. Jesus has came so that you and I can behold his glory. He came so that you and I could know who God is. That's why John is writing this gospel. So we don't have to settle for the lies that Satan gives us. So that we don't have to settle for living in a way that is not pleasing to God. And living apart from what our souls really long for. Which is the truth and the grace of God. That's what John focused on in verse 14. He said, we have seen his glory. And that word seen means we have beheld, we have gazed upon, we have lingered upon his glory. And then the last phrase of verse 15 describes that glory. The glory of Jesus is full of grace and truth. The very things you and I hunger for. To know that we are loved by one who knows us intimately and he gives us grace. And he is truthful. We hunger for truth. And we hunger for one who will love us and remain faithful to the covenant that he has made with us. And now the glory of Jesus tells us we have found what our souls hunger for. And now he begins to explain that just a bit more. 
What does this mean? How does this impact our lives when we behold the glory? And verse 15 picks up on this theme that when we behold the glory of God in Jesus, our lives will gain a new perspective. Our priorities will be rearranged. Now verse 15 is a parenthesis. It's an aside note. You'll notice the parentheses at the beginning and end of this verse. You could remove verse 15 and the flow of the argument would still flow uninhibited from verse 14 into verse 16 because you'll notice verse 16 begins with the little word for. But verse 15 is there. And it's there for a reason. He wants us to know first of all that there are witnesses to the glory of God. This is not something he's making up. He comes back again to John the Baptist to say, John testified of his glory, but he's also doing something else. He is showing us that John, as great as John the Baptist was, was merely a servant. See, John had gained quite a following. Later in chapter 1, we're going to be introduced to the fact that John himself, he had disciples. He had young men that were following him, learning his message, listening to it. And John looks at his disciples and he says, One day, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Follow him. And even after John the Baptist was beheaded, even after Jesus had ascended into heaven, there were still groups that followed John. Paul met one group in Ephesus, Acts 19. He says they had not heard of the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in John's baptism. And John, Paul says to him, well, let me tell you something. John was good, but he wasn't all that because he pointed to Jesus Christ. So he comes back to John to say John recognized that the priority of his life was to point to Jesus. He recognized that the perspective he needed in life is that it was not all about him. That's why he says, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. See, what John preached was unique. The person who came first was usually granted preeminence. Now, John not only began his ministry before Jesus, he was also older than Jesus. So the common pattern would have been this. John the Baptist is preaching and Jesus comes along and follows John. That's why John was shocked when Jesus came to be baptized and he said, whoa, whoa, you baptize me. Jesus says, not right now. Because the idea was Jesus would become a disciple of John. Then when John dies, Jesus steps up into the role. But that's not what John does. John says, this one who's coming after me is greater than I am. He says, why is he greater? He ranks before me. He is superior to I, who I am. Why? Because he was before me. Wait a minute, John. He was born six months after you. No, he has existed eternally. You see, John shows us that our lives are to be lived, to be spent testifying as to who Jesus is. We need that perspective. We need that priority in our life. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, If you have not found something for which you are ready to die for, you are not yet fit to live. And John is saying that in Jesus, he has found that which gives his life purpose and meaning because he was sent from God for that purpose. Now, you and I live in a world that says, very, sometimes very subtly and sometimes very loudly, that you and I are at the center of everything that goes on. Everything we engage in in social media is about us. We're at the center what you find is people come to the end of their lives and they wonder why they feel empty and why they are lacking meaning 
Because a life that is spent living for yourself will not bring satisfaction. The only life worth living is one that is living for something eternal. Something where, like John, we are saying, he ranks before me. We hear it as a cliche. It's not about you. But you know what? It's not about you. And it's not about me. And we need this perspective of John to recognize that indeed our lives as believers are to be spent glorifying Jesus so that people know the glory of God that is in him. And I'm not just talking about as a a full-time minister because we are all believers are full-time ministers. I may minister and preach here at Trinity. You minister at the school you teach at, at the bank you work at, at the office you go to every day. God has placed you there as his ambassador, as his John the Baptist saying, let me tell you about the one who ranks before me. So that in everything we do, as Colossians says, we are to do it to the glory of God. You see, this is not some theoretical experience we're talking about here. This impacts how you live. And he is saying that when you behold the glory of God in Jesus, you're not going to stay the same. Your priorities will be changed. Now that's hard living. Because the minute you say, Lord, I'm not living for self. I'm living for the glory of God. We recognize that our ability to do that is limited. We need God's power and His grace. And I think that's why now, as we move into verses 16 and 17, he says not only when we behold the glory of Jesus... Not only do we gain a new perspective and priority, but we see the pinnacle of God's grace. Now, as I said earlier, verse 16 begins with that three-letter conjunction, which can be translated because. It's also connected to verse 14 because of the word fullness. For from his fullness, what fullness is that? Look back to verse 14. The glory of God and Jesus that is full of grace and truth. The implication is that if Jesus is full of grace and truth, we all have received from that. Now that word received is introduced again. We we met it first in verses 11 and 12. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Receiving or reception means a gift. Something given to you. Now in this case, look at what is given to us. We have all received grace upon grace. Now that's a very, it sounds simple, but it's really hard to understand what he's getting at because a more accurate translation would be grace against grace or grace in place of grace. So we had grace, but he's saying that Jesus came and gave us a greater grace. Now you're thinking, what in the world is that? mean that's why verse 17 is there for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ the law is seen as an act of God's grace this harkens back to Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34 when Moses went back on the mountain to intercede for Israel after they had rebelled against God God was ready to destroy them And Moses intercedes. And then, as God hears the intercession of Moses, what does he do? He gives a second copy of the covenant, a second copy of the Ten Commandments to Moses. So the children of Israel recognize that's God's grace. God could have wiped us out, but instead, in his grace, he gives us 
The covenant that we might know how to live as his people. He's not abandoned us. And then he comes and he says, this law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's given through Moses, but it comes in Jesus. In other words, whereas Moses received the law and the grace and truth of God, Jesus is the embodiment of the grace and truth of God. Living, breathing, walking, teaching, demonstrating what the grace and truth of God looks like. Think of it in terms like this. Many of you that, that are my age and above can remember this. Those younger, you've probably seen pictures of how TVs were in the late 60s and the early 70s. Uh-huh. Black and white. Rabbit ears. I can remember my brother sending me out outside because the TV was blurry and I'd have to twist the antenna. Can I get a witness? Yeah, I think he, he waited for thunderstorms to send me out to do that. That's where we were. This black and white, and you'd have these lines that would go up and down. But where are we now? 65-inch plasma, high-definition color TVs that have, like, scratch and sniff. You know, you can see the turf and you can smell it. Black and white, high-definition. Now, both of them will do the same thing. Both of them will show you a picture. But which one's more clear? Which one is better? You see, it's as if he's saying the law was God's grace, but it was like black and white. But now in Jesus, you have high definition what the grace and the truth of God looks like. He says that comes in Jesus. That comes in him. That's why he says grace upon grace. And it's not that Jesus did away with the law. Jesus himself says, I'm not done away with it, but it's a fuller expression of that grace. Why? Because the law pointed to Jesus. Look to verse 45 in chapter 1. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him of whom Moses and the law wrote. We found the one that Moses and the law was telling about. This is echoed again up on the screens. You'll see John chapter 5. Look at verses 44 through 47. Talking to the Pharisees, the experts in the law. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He says, you are so consumed with the glory you get from other people you're missing the glory of God that's right in front of you. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. In other words, Jesus says, it's not my testimony that will do you in. There is one who accuses you. Moses on whom you set your hope. Now that had to make him angry. Because he's saying the very one through whom the law came, the law you study day in and day out, he'll testify against you. Why? For if you believed Moses, you would, have, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He's saying the Torah was pointing to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I have come as the full expression of grace and truth. You have moved from black and white to high definition to know what the grace is. Of God and the truth of God is like. Now, the question is if we've experienced that fulfillment, why would we go back to living under the law? The scripture says that the law served its purpose. Paul, in writing in 2 Corinthians, he says, The old covenant, the law, it gives death. 
The new covenant in Jesus gives life. The old covenant under the law, it gives condemnation. But the new covenant in Jesus, it gives righteousness. The old covenant of the law is a fading glory. It doesn't last. The new covenant in Jesus, it gives eternal glory. How in the world do we still try to live under the law when we establish a legalism in our own lives, thinking, believing, we have to work to earn that? We carry around this heavy burden that we don't have to carry around. Two weeks ago, a friend of our family's helped us out by putting down seed in our backyard where Emma's room had been added on. It was still dirt and this good friend came out and put down seed and hay. And then he told me as he was leaving, he said, now the key is this. You've got to keep it watered. At least twice a day, morning and evening. Now you have to understand, I get obsessive about things like that. So he said before 10 in the morning, okay, I'm out there at 7 a.m. I was getting ready with the sprinklers. And then he says after 8 at night, I'm ready, I'm on. But of course, I've not had much of a need to do that, have I? I was joking around with my wife. And I said, I'm going to have to call our friend and tell him that I've not been able to water because of the rain. <laughs> Let him know. I was ready. I've got the sprinklers. But you know what? I can't do it because it keeps raining. When you and I believe we have to live our lives by works and by law and by self-righteousness, it's like putting sprinklers in the rain. You don't need it. Our righteousness is in Christ. He is the one who has provided exactly what we need. And there are many who are carrying around this sense of guilt and weightiness. And it falls over into self-righteousness because you feel like, I cannot be good enough. I cannot earn it. I can't attain it. And I fail and I fail and I fail. I would tell you this morning to learn to glory in the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Because it is a well of grace that cannot be exhausted. Out of the fullness of His grace, this grace upon grace, this endless supply of grace that comes out that says, no matter what the sin is, there is grace to forgive it. No matter how far you have wandered away, there is grace to reach you. Now, I, it helps me to get visuals of how great that grace is because it sounds so theoretical. So this week I read about Lake Tahoe there in northern Nevada, northern California. This lake at its deepest point is 1,645 feet deep. If you were to release Lake Tahoe on the state of California, it would cover the entire state in 14 inches of water. It's estimated there's enough water in Lake Tahoe to give every American 50 gallons of water for five years, every day. And that's only the eighth largest lake in the world. There are larger lakes. But here's the thing, you would eventually get to a point there's no more water. I'm thirsty, but there's nothing else to drink. We've exhausted for five years our 50 gallons every day. But with the grace of God, there is no point where His grace runs out. There is no point where God says, that's it. That's it. You've repented, but there is no more grace. Because out of Jesus, we receive grace upon grace upon grace. And that is part of the glory of who He is. When we repent and turn to Him, He is gracious and good. Because He is the pinnacle of the grace of God. And verse 18 comes to give this summary that Jesus is not only the one when we behold his glory that puts things in priority, perspective. Not only is he the pinnacle of God's grace, but he gives us a true picture of who God is. Look at verse 18. 
No one's ever seen God. God is spirit. In Exodus 34, Moses doesn't see God. He says, you'll just see the backside of me, which is a way of saying, you'll just get a little bit of a taste, a little glimpse of the glory. God appears in a burning bush as a way that Moses can experience him, but it's not fully God. No one's ever seen him. And then we get this curious phrase. No one's seen God. The only God. Now that word only, we've heard before. It's a word that goes back to verse 14. The only Son. Unique. None like Him. And how is He referred to here? God. This is Trinitarian thought. Because Jesus as God is distinct from God the Father. He is at the Father's side. He's in the bosom of God. It's a place of intimacy. A place of closeness. A place of value. I really wish each of you could have been here Wednesday night to have heard Nathan's sermon on the union of Christ because it reminds us that by faith you and I are united with Christ so that as He is at the bosom of the Father, you and I are too. Not because we have earned it, but because we can literally say, I'm here with Him by His grace so that as Jesus glories in the love of God, we glory in the love of God by virtue of being united with Christ. He is at the Father's side, ascended into heaven. But look at the last phrase. He has made him known. He says, you want to know what God the Father is like? You look at Jesus. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. You may get little glimpses, but Jesus is the one specifically that reveals God. Now, it's easy to sit back and think, Pastor, that is way over my head. Just tell me what I need to know. Just tell me the basics that I need to know, and I'm happy with that. I mean, I don't need to know everything about the oxygen molecule to breathe. I don't need to know everything about water to drink. So just tell me the basics, Pastor. First, I want to tell you, you cannot compare knowing Jesus to oxygen or water. Because to know Jesus is to be in a relationship with Him. So you have to think of it on those terms. How do you think any marriage would work out? A couple gets married, then a year later they end up at the marriage counselor's office. Marriage counselor says, well, what's the problem? The wife says, I don't know what the problem, no, I'll tell you what the problem is. It's him. He quit talking to me. We got married and it was like he just clammed up. He does not say a word to me. Counselor looks at the husband and says, well, what's, what's going on? He says, that's right. I let her know a lo- enough about me to fall in love and marry me, and then that's it. She needed to know just enough to fall in love. How do you think that's going to go? It's not a rhetorical question. It's not good. When you enter into a relationship, you want to talk. You want that dialogue. You want to grow in that. We have been brought into a relationship with God through Jesus. And there is more of God to know. And if He is the source of joy and peace and grace and truth and wisdom, why do we want to skimp on knowing those things? That's like saying, I've got the best job in the world. I make minimum wage and I'm happy. And then somebody comes knocking. I'll offer you $100 an hour to do that same job. How many of us would say, thank you for that offer of $100 an hour, but I'm happy with minimum wage? Anyone? 
we would say, yes, give me more. Why would we say, I want more material things that really have no eternal value? And God is saying, here I am, you can know me. And know more joy, and more peace, and more grace, and more wisdom. So how do we do that? I mean, I mentioned earlier in verse 14 where he says, we have seen his glory. It's the word behold. It's the word gazing upon. So Jesus has ascended into heaven. So how can you and I gaze upon the beauty of Christ? First thing is we have to realize we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. You and I cannot grit our teeth and make it happen. We must plead with the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, quicken our hearts, enliven our minds, illuminate them, that we may gaze upon His glory. Now, every believer, when they are saved, receives the Holy Spirit. So what that means is this. If we have the Holy Spirit, we must put ourselves in a place to behold the glory. Last year, last August, there was the, the eclipse, the total eclipse. Now, you could see the eclipse from about anywhere in North America. But if you'll remember, there was one path where if you were in that path, you had the best view of the eclipse. My hometown of Athens was one of the cities in that path. Our, our friends said the city of Athens, it swelled almost doubling in its population on that one day. People that wanted to see that eclipse up close. In the same way, every believer has the Holy Spirit. But are we putting ourselves in the path of the Spirit to behold the glory of Christ? How do we put ourselves in the path? Well, it starts obviously with saying, Lord, clear me of sin. Get rid of the clutter that's in my mind, the sinful thoughts, Lord. Purify me. And then we ask, Lord, let me see Jesus. And then we dive into the Word. Since we cannot see Jesus physically right now, we know Him through His Word. And the Word, the revelation of truth and grace is given that we might love Him and know Him. Kevin DeYoung is a, a pastor and an author, and he wrote these words, which I think are very, very applicable. If you go to that next screen, he says the goal of revelation is not information only. So it means we're not reading the Scripture just for information. We are reading it for affection, worship, and obedience. Christ in us will be realized only as we drink deeply of the Bible, which is God's Word outside of us. So it means I want to come to the Scripture and say, Lord, let me see Jesus. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, let me see Jesus. You say, well, Pastor, it's hard for me to read. And that's where I would encourage you. Start with something small. A paragraph. Put yourself in the path of the Spirit. The community Bible reading is a great place to begin. That way there's accountability just coming to say, what did the Lord say to you? And it may be you need to adjust your schedule to make time for it. We're all busy. But our busyness will be driven by our priorities. And we will say yes or no based upon what we value. Will you get up five minutes earlier? 10 minutes but pastor when I get up like that and I open the Bible and I try to pray you know what happens to me I fall asleep no it's okay it's happened to me too there are some drool stains on my Bible pages you know how I combat that I stand up and I pray with my eyes open <gasps> it's okay to pray like that 
How did Jesus pray? Standing with his eyes gazing up into the Father. Now it's okay to pray with your eyes open as long as you're not just looking around to see who else has their eyes open. But we come and we say, Lord, open my eyes to Jesus. Let me see him. The final thing I would encourage you to do as you fill your mind with scripture, use music. Isn't it amazing how music will stick with us? And songs that glorify Christ. For the offertory today, Julie's going to be playing In Christ Alone. Now, don't go changing on me now. In Christ Alone. We get that music in our minds and begin singing it in our minds throughout the day. That's getting the glory of Christ in us. It amazes me how I'll go to the store and I'll forget what I went for, but I can remember songs from 1987. Think of songs that glorify Christ and get them in your thinking. And it is a discipline. It's work, but it is glorious labor. Because you know what the payoff is? You and I get to behold Jesus. That is worth it all. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me now. I'm going to ask Nathan to join me at the front. There may be something very specific the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart about. The Holy Spirit may be bringing conviction right now and saying that, you know what, you've let so much clutter infiltrate your mind that, you know what, you need to just to start. You need to, to make changes in your life. Now, I know you can pray right where you are and ask the Lord to do that and he hears that but there is something special something a level of accountability when we step out and confess to another I need help in this for others it may be you don't know Jesus and you've heard this today this that Jesus is full of grace and truth and the Holy Spirit's he's piquing your curiosity you may need to come forward to either me or Nathan and say, I want to know more about Jesus. And what we'll do is we'll plan a time to talk with you in depth. We don't want to rush through this. It's far too important. For others, it may just be that prayer, Lord, open my eyes. After this prayer, we will stand together and begin singing. Father, I'm guilty of taking the grace of Jesus Christ for granted. This morning, Father, as I'm reminded of the truth that He is the pinnacle of your revelation of grace and truth, Lord, I am in awe. I'm in awe that you would love us enough that we could know Him. That you would reveal yourself. And Lord, even here at the beginning of this gospel, it takes our breath away to think that Jesus Christ is full of your glory the glory of grace and truth Lord bring us closer to him don't let us know just facts and trivia but Lord let us behold our Lord Jesus for it is in his name that we pray Amen